America knows war. They are war masters. We tortured some folks. So I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr. Putin. You bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. You were born with democracy choices. You have free election right, but we don't. Please help us. Pat and Rob save the world. All right, Pat and Rod save the world. We skipped last week. Yeah. We don't really have a good reason but for the fact that both of us were insanely busy and circumstances conspired against us. So, sorry about that. Yeah, it got around to Sunday night and, you know, it was Sunday night. Who the fuck wants to do anything on Sunday night? Yeah, you were just not going to get the usual vim and vigor. Like, this is a morning activity, I'd say. I think so. Yeah, it's morning activity. Um, the other thing is probably worth mentioning before we get into the substance of the thing is that, um, well, Rod, you tell people what you're up to. No idea. Well, I'm, um, I'm fucking off, basically. Um, I've uh, I've quit my job and I'm uh, I'm heading off overseas for however long I can uh, keep travelling around finding stories and selling them freelance guys. I'm uh, not entirely sure how it'll go. We'll uh, we'll just head off and see. Um, I uh, I was thinking about heading to uh, to Pakistan first, but um, wouldn't you know it? Getting a visa to Pakistan is a bit of a nightmare. So uh, uh, so instead, I'm going to just sort of head sort of Eastern Europe way, uh, I'll probably, because um, I've already spent some time in Ukraine, so I'll head back there at some point. I think I'll I'll go to Greece as well, because that's a very interesting little part of the world as far as news goes at the moment. Also right next door to Turkey, which is a very interesting part of the world as far as news goes at the moment. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll just see how it goes. The world is your oyster. Or mollusk of choice. That's it. Um, so that probably segues us into the first topic. I mean, just a, a very quick overview of the topics. First of all, we're going to talk about Greece. Um, yeah. Yeah, what the fuck, Greece? We'll, we'll talk about Greece later. <laughs> Number two, we're going to talk about the Rolling Stone, or rather the report about the Rolling Stone article on... Colossal rape. failure of journalism. Yes, that's the subtext. <laughs> and third, we're going to speak about a, a, a quite phenomenal documentary that we watched about Robert Durst called The Jinx. Robert Durst being the um, erstwhile uh, real estate heir to a large fortune in New York yep. who has been um, accused on a number of occasions of murder. Yep. Um, and just kept getting away with it. Yeah. So there is, it's really a spoiler alert um, category. If you haven't seen The Jinx, we recommend you don't listen to our third segment and you watch The Jinx. Yep. It is... Probably the most breathtakingly ambitious documentary I've seen ever. And what they managed to carry off was quite amazing. Um, so, mate, start out with the, the factual matrix, Greece. <laughs> okay, well, so um, I don't think we need to go into too much detail of the economic collapse detail? Of, uh, of the Greek nation. That would require <laughs> knowing facts, Rod. Yeah. You know we don't operate on that basis. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, if you want to go and see a Western country failing... Um, it's uh, certainly on an economic level. It's been Greece over the past five or six years. Yeah. Um, I mean, really, the crucial dynamic to understand is that Greece is in tremendous financial difficulty and the German government um, leading the EU has essentially uh, assumed the liability that Greece incurred through uh, basically decades of economic mismanagement ludicrously uh, generous welfare state handouts, um, a, a population that just considers paying tax optional. Um, so, you know, you catch my drift. Basically, Germany is the most powerful country in the EU. 
um, Greece is in hoc to them uh, to an enormous amount of money. I think it's something in the order of 900 billion. Um, and so that's kind of the basis on which, uh, you know, our discussions going to take place. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, was it last year, the Greek election? Um, no, it was no. actually this year. It was this year? Yeah, early this year. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was the end of last year. Um, Let me just check that. But... Well, so Lexi... Um... <laughs> <laughs> it's probably appropriate for yeah. that. Um, Le Lexi's uh, uh, an interesting character. He... He doesn't seem to think uh, that it's Greece's fault that they're, you know, in the economic can at all. Um, and uh, <laughs> the Greeks seem to like that. Um, so uh, just this week, what sort of set off this discussion um, was uh, the demand of, uh, was it $300 billion? Yes. Well, what it really was is what we lawyers like to call an offset. <laughs> I owe you $900 billion, but you know what? Upon reflection, you actually owe me $300 billion, which means I only owe you $600 yeah. billion. Now, That's the neat trick that Greece is trying to play. Yeah. And now, I mean, <laughs> is it really a neat trick when it's the stupidest fucking thing in the world? Well, it's a rhetorical tool, basically. I mean, the long and short of it is the Germans are saying to the Greeks, you need to pursue austerity. Um, you need to solve your problems with uh, cutting back on these ludicrous state expenditures. You need to sell off assets. Yeah. Um, and the Greeks have backed out of a major sale of one of their largest ports to the Chinese because of this new government. And they're making the argument, and there's a, there is an argument to be made here, that actually the way to deal with their problems is to just pump money into their economy in a kind of Keynesian, Marshall Plan-esque yeah. kind of way. The problem being that right now, the way that the Greeks run their affairs is just so sort of pitiable that if you pumped money into it, it would be like trying to, um, you know, use a sieve <laughs> as as a, a, a water bowl for a dog. Yeah. Like, it's just... Or to bail yourself out of a that's it. with a sieve. That's it. To bail yourself out with a sieve. That's a good analogy. So... There, the real problem here is that Greece is not taking the austerity measures that it needs to take. It's also not really undertaking the substantial reforms it needs to take for a Keynesian method to actually yeah. work. So like the if only just no one pays their taxes, then well, that's. I mean, they have this fundamental problem, and this is, by the way, um, anecdotal evidence. Yeah. I mean, it's been well reported on, but also a few of my mates are Greek and actually were born in that country. There's a lot of Greek people living in Australia, and, and they tell me that basically in Greece, most people just don't take tax seriously. Um, you know, most professionals, for instance, you know, people you'd consider generally, traditionally, upstanding pillars of society, lawyers, yeah. um, doctors, you know, they will basically report 5% of their income and then pay tax on that. It's just yeah. the done thing, apparently. And if you're... Uh you know, not great for a country by itself, but if that country is part of a larger economic block such as the EU, yeah, um, kind of drags them all down. Well, that's fundamentally it. The problem is, is that Greece is using the euro, um, and so a constituent country of the euro is in this much difficulty. Um, so it is actually in some quarters. A friend of mine in um, who lives in Europe, who sort of knows many people in European think tanks. There are a lot of the sort of European intelligentsia, I suppose you'd call them, actually are really coming to terms with the fact that there's a good chance the EU is over.
um, that this really exposes fundamental flaws in the system. Yeah. Um, that you create a situation where you can have free riders like Greece who essentially hold everybody else to ransom with their bad behavior. Uh, like a crack, crack addict in a good neighborhood. That's it. And we can get to the, the, the loan shark Russia in a little bit. Yeah. But I mean, so the, let's just talk about the morality of the Greeks asserting that actually the Germans owe them $300 billion in war reparations. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Germany does not owe Greece $300 billion in fucking war reparations. <laughs> you crazy fucking bastards. I would, <laughs> like I the, would the audacity her. of it is almost admirable from Greece. Like, <laughs> who thinks they can get away with that? Well, this is it. So, Lexi, the stripper prime minister, yeah. is essentially trying to find the bus fare to his pole by searching between the couch cushions for change yeah. that he's forgotten about. Yeah, like, what can I find back here? Oh, shit, Nazis. Everyone That's hates right. Nazis. Damn, Nazis. Who's going to say no to the Nazis? <laughs> Playing the Nazi card, I think yeah. it should be called. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, look, the long and short of it is the reason that Germany has been so fucking nice to the Greeks up to this point is really only explicable by um, the, the sort of residual guilt the Germany as a country feels for what happened 70 odd years yeah, ago. Yeah, like it, um, it, I think it's time we can just. I mean, if I was German, I would be so pissed already yeah. that w for what Germany's done. They've been way too nice to the Greeks, in my view. I just think when you have a country full of people who don't pay tax and you have outlandish things like public servants retiring at an 80% of their salary pension forever. Yeah. Like, this is just not sustainable. And the fact that hardworking Germans have to basically pay money into the coffers to sustain this or at least bail them out, yeah, that's just, <laughs> it just seems sick. Yeah, This is really the country equivalent of what the banks did to the US during the financial crisis. Yeah, yeah exactly. we've behaved badly, yeah. but you know what? You're we just, go down, you're going to really hurt too. So you're just going to have to keep paying and bail us out? That's it. I mean, talk about moral hazard. <laughs> that, was the, that was the phrase bandied about during the financial crisis in respect of the banks. And, you know, the Greeks have followed the, uh, the, the, the um, lesson explained by a cartoon I saw, <laughs> which is basically a banker or bankers talking together with the government bureaucrats in the background looking concerned, and the bankers basically saying, you know what we've learned from this is if you're going to fuck up, make sure you really fuck up. Yeah. And that's essentially what the Greeks have done on a country basis. And by the way, just as an aside, Goldman Sachs. Go fuck yourself, they, Goldman Sachs. They were helping the Greeks cover up their liabilities with some very creative financial instruments before they collapsed. So, you know, there is a straight line to be drawn between the corruption of the American investment banks and yeah. the way that the Greeks have handled themselves. Is there a corporation that has done more harm in the past 10 years than Goldman Sachs? I don't know. Anyway... <laughs> the problem with Goldman's is they are actually undeniably competent. I acted yeah. on the other side oh, of some transactions to them, and they're very smart. Yeah. And they're very aggressive. They'd have to be. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. On one level, it's like, well, really, it's the government's responsibility to control them. 
And, um, you know, yeah. like they're a corporation. They're a money-making machine. I always thought that expecting your lawnmower to have morals is a ridiculous thing. <laughs> and that's what a government's for. And the basic problem in the system, not to get too sidetracked, is that you now have the lawnmower telling the guy who pushes it what, what to, to do. do. Yeah. And, and that's really the fundamental problem. I, I have no problem with lawnmowers. I just don't want them dictating what direction they move in, you know, because right now Goldman Sachs is a lawnmower that wants to mow the flower bed, you know. <laughs> good enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so back to Greece. Back to Greece, yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, crack, crack addict in a good neighbourhood just stinking the place <laughs> up. Um, <laughs> And, uh, we we co-authored this analogy, by the way. That was my that was, I started it out with that, yeah. and Rod finished it with the next. Yes, yeah. uh, because now we have the big nasty loan shark has now has a foot in the door of the nice neighbourhood. He lives on the outskirts crack, of town, yeah, uh, but through this crack addict, uh, he now has a foot in the door, and you know the neighbourhood is shitting itself. Um, so the loan shark, uh, obviously, being Russia, because. Wouldn't you know it, this week, uh, Lexi has visited good old Vladimir. <laughs> Vlad and Lexi are best buds. Um, um, and, uh, and Russia is more than happy to, uh, to provide substantial loans to, uh, to Greece. I'm not sure that any um, values have been ascribed to these loans yet. I think it's just talk at this point. Uh, I could be wrong on that. Um, but, uh, you, know, you know, we'll more than happy to, to provide loans to Greece uh, and we can work together in other areas. Um, and, uh, and of course, this morning reports coming out of Lexi um, is, that, uh, uh, is that he's calling for a reset in relations between Russia and the EU. Um, oh, Lexi. Yeah. The peacemaker. Come to save us all from the Russians. So <laughs> I just want to like think about this again because I'm just fascinated by the forbearance of the Germans. Yeah. Okay, you have assumed essentially the liabilities of this this spendthrift. Okay, and the spendthrift is now cuddling up to your enemy. Yeah. Like as leverage. As leverage. While you're bailing them out, at the same time as accusing you of treating them badly seventy years ago. With, by the way, so the other thing we're talking about, just like if you take the response, the sort of moral responsibility view of this. The idea that the Germans owe the Greeks anything is, I think, ridiculous, mainly because the only, first of all, no one in Germany in power had anything to do with anything to do with Nazis, basically. Yeah. And you can actually make an argument that the current generation, all they did, they're as much victims of the Nazis as the Greeks of this generation are, in the sense that Germany went through some very tough times after World War II. Yeah. Like, like it's been, like it's been like a black mark against the German character. That's it. To this day, they they still feel the need to like be apologetic about it. And they don't like talking about it and all these. But Angela things. Merkel also she yeah. lived in like Eastern Germany for decades. Yeah. Now that was not a fun place to live, and part of the reason that that was a state of affairs was because of World War Two. So you can actually make the argument that. Germans of Angela Merkel's generation suffered more from the Nazis, from the errors of their parents, than the Greeks of this generation did. Yeah. Honestly. I, I could go along with that. I mean, I think that that's actually, like, it's counterintuitive, but true. And for, for the Greeks to be asking the, the Germans to... I mean, I just think it's fascinating. Completely irrational. Talk <laughs> about being blamed for the sins of the parents. Yeah. No one well, should I mean, be held responsible. Sins of the grandparents. The this sins is... of the grandparents. No one should be held responsible for their parents, let alone grandparents. Yeah. 
Um, I just I find it fascinating that though that this is a sustainable rhetorical tool that actually is not laughed at. Yeah. Because my mate from Europe the other day was telling me because I don't pay a great deal of attention to the European news that basically when the the Greek finance minister rocked up in Germany, the first words out of his mouth were essentially Nazis, <laughs> Nazis. You know, like. Just remember the Nazis. Just play that Nazi card. Like this it's is all he's fucking. Got. This is a major strategy from the Greeks to try and get out of the fix that they're in. And the concern from the European intelligentsia, at least according to my mate who's linked in with that, is that if the leftists, because these people are essentially leftists who are governing Greece right now, yeah. if they don't have their way and they fail and there's sort of a disaster, that the population could well swing back right. I was th- I was actually just thinking about that because there is. Um, such a uh, like extreme right wing element in Greece at the moment. What are they called? Um, the Golden Dawn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and I was just wondering if that had anything to do with the Nazi card that the Greek government is playing for all it's worth. I actually think that that's a very interesting idea. Yeah. What really this sort of if there is an internal element to. Yeah. I mean, it could be. I suppose as much a way to try and marginalise the extreme right mm. as it is to leave, leave a money out of the, out of the Germans. Yeah. Um, it makes sense. But the, the reality is, is that um, the Greeks could well go to the extreme right if the extreme left doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that would be kind of ironic to it, one, <laughs> to, to on the sort of, on the first blush, blame the Germans for fascism to try and get money out of them, and yeah. then if that doesn't work, to essentially elect fascism, fascists yeah, yeah. in your own country. Yeah, yeah, and I don't even know. I mean, what the fuck? Anyway, and what a bizarre situation. Yeah. And then cuddling up to Putin. I mean, talk about a slap in the face, biting the hands that biting <laughs> the hand that feeds you. I mean, if look, as you probably realised, if Pat Brown was a German, he would be ropeable. <laughs> Like, you know I what just I do? don't understand. Yeah. What I find a little bit interesting is that we're not really hearing, or at least not in the, you know, the coverage that I've read, and I haven't looked at every single story going around about this, seems to be very little in the way of comment from other EU countries about this. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, <coughs> it really does seem to be Germany, Greece, and Russia. Um, yeah. what, what's, you know, what's the rest of the EU talking about? What's France and but a UK and... Oh, well, look, um, first of all, the UK is just sitting smugly up in the upper left <laughs> of the picture, um, having not adopted the currency. Yeah. So having much less of a stake in the outcome of this because, I mean, the, the Brits refused to adopt the euro and um, really they're affected by the EU so far as, like, their meat safety regulations are concerned. Um, and, yes, they have representatives, but, like, it's, it's not as anywhere close to... Uh, as big a problem for the uh, Brits as it is for people who've adopted the euro. And the yeah. French, I presume, uh, you know, they're the other major power in the EU. They're probably just trying to avoid it as much as they can. Yeah. Um, and the Germans really have an enormous stake in it because they're the, the EU benefactors. I mean, like, a lot of the EU is really a transfer of wealth from Germany to other countries. Um, with a kind of a Marshall Plan rationale that if we build up the countries around us, their trading partners, ultimately it'll be better for everyone. I mean, I actually think there's something to the European project. You can, even though it's in terrible straits right now, I think you really can consider it one of the most uh, ambitious 
um, uh, governance projects ever undertaken. Yeah. Now, just uh, on the sort of death of the EU angle, which we touched on a, a yeah. while ago, like, if, like, you know, this could be the end of them. Could. Is it also possible that if Greece, you know, in essence breaks away from the EU and cuddles up to Russia, that that could be the saving oh, of the, the EU? The Greeks would never break away from the EU. No? No. I don't think that's possible. They could get kicked out of it. Yeah. But financially, they're just too linked in with it. They're just going to basically use Russia as a lever against Germany to try and strike a better deal. And, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out. The Americans are very critical of how the Germans are dealing with it. They basically say the Germans are putting putting off the inevitable, that the Greeks essentially have to proclaim insolvency. I mean, and the reason that the German government has so much... um, of the liability of Greece covered initially was because the German banks were heavily exposed. Yeah. So, you know, kind of the banks come into it again. As much as, uh, as much as it was because of Germany's guilt-inspired largesse, it was also really a hard-headed calculation that the German government needed to help German banks um, who had a lot of exposure to the Greeks in terms of sovereign debt. So, yeah, anyway, I think we probably talked that one out. But, yeah. like, it really is bizarre. Um, yeah, interesting uh, interesting situation. Fascinating. And, you, I don't know, probably in a month you'll be in the middle of it. Yeah. So you'll, I'm sure, have some interesting insights to offer. All right, so on to the next one. Um, just, uh, was it last week or the week before? Uh, I'm losing track of time a little bit. Um, but a, um, a major report from... Uh, Columbia University, which I think is the top journalism school in uh, in the states. It is. Yep. Um, uh, it was actually um, uh, commissioned by Rolling Stone. Uh, they wanted an independent uh, body to look into uh, well a journalistic failure of theirs, um, which was uh, I believe November last year. Uh, one of their reporters, um, Sabrina Rubin Erdely, Erdely. How you say her name? Um, Sabrina from here on in. <laughs> Sabrina. Um, uh, she wrote this really shocking report that got massive coverage uh, both within the States and around the world called A Rape on Campus. Um, and it detailed um, this really horrific rape in a fraternity uh, of uh, uh, basically, I think it was seven blokes uh, on this uh, woman. Um, really shocking. And... Um, uh, and almost immediately, however, uh, there seemed to be a lot of holes in the story. Um, and Washington Post and a few other organisations started looking into it and saying, like, yeah, no, this, this just doesn't add up, doesn't seem to be right. Um, and, uh, and Rolling Stone at first, you know, st- tried to sort of distance themselves from their source, um, who didn't have a, a, a full name, was given a pseudonym of Jackie, um, uh, None of the people actually mentioned in the uh, uh, in the re- in the report from Sabrina uh, had uh, had real names attached to them, uh, except for um, university officials. Um, and um, yeah, no, uh, Rolling Stone first time, like we just got some bad information, or 
that sort of thing. And eventually they commissioned this report from Columbia. Uh, the report came out either last week or the week before, and it was a very long, very detailed report. Uh, and I read the whole thing because I'm a journalist and I'm interested in, well, how, how my industry works. And it is just a, a fascinating document of a f just journalistic failure on every conceivable level from the journalist in question to her um, uh, immediate uh, editor, Sean Woods, who was working with her on the story, um, to the managing editor of the thing, Will Dana. You, all three of you, just hang your heads in shame. Every single check and balance. I, I mean, to the point of just basic, uh, basic journalistic practice of trying to, you know, make sure that what you're being told is the truth. Like, mm. it just didn't happen. So the the reason though the 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 reason that she didn't go and check the other side of the story yeah. is because in American universities with sort of political correctness running rampant, in my view anyway, in the view of many, um, it's actually considered uh, incorrect and um, um, what would be the word? Not abusive to the victim, yeah, yeah. but against the victim's interests in an unacceptable way to seek the other side of the story. Yeah, and that's uh, that's the uh, the argument that they've um, that they've put forward. Mm. Um, but uh, as the report stated, there were plenty of other things they could have done um, that would have had red flags going up. Like even if they didn't, uh, and they couldn't have actually ended up getting the the other side of the story because the main guy. Uh, who was accused of orchestrating it all just flat out doesn't exist. Oh, really? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> so they, they, they would never have been able to get his side of the story because he, he's an imaginary yeah. person. Yeah. Um, and the fact is, though, they didn't try. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Which they would have, even on the barest analysis, yeah. figured out, I suppose. Yeah. Like, like, there were various things. He was apparently a member of the fraternity and also worked with Jackie as a uh, lifeguard at the university pool. They didn't go and check... Uh, anything about the the, the pool? Um, yeah. They didn't check the fraternity records of anyone who worked at the pool and was also a member of the fraternity. They and very very importantly, um, they didn't actually give. They they approached the fraternity for comment, but that was just it. Can you comment on uh, a sexual assault? Do you think didn't give. Um, the date it apparently happened didn't give any of the details that the and had they done any of that, which is but again pretty basic journalistic practice, mm. the fraternity could have told them, well, I, I, you know, we didn't actually have any event on the, this the, when this apparently happened. Mm. We don't have any fraternity members that meet this um, description. So, so even third parties. Yeah. So and any of the, and as the report made very clear, any of these sort of things would have put up red flags, and they might have started thinking, "Oh, you know what? Maybe this, maybe we ought to check up on this a bit more yeah, before publishing." I mean, exactly. I just think this is a fantastic example of the dangers of advocate journalism. Yeah, and advocate journalism is a much larger phenomenon than it ever has been. Yeah, and you could say it's really it's a descendant of kind of the Gonzo approach. Um, Taken by who was the famous the Hunter, guy Hunter Hunter S Thompson? Yeah. Yeah. I mean you know uh, Rolling Stone icon. That's um, it. Where basically I mean to sum it up, and you tell me if I'm wrong about this because I don't know much about journalism. It, it's essentially the um, the dropping of 
uh, any kind of idea of an unbiased perspective. Yeah. It's the journalist as participant. Yeah. And uh, really what it allows a journalist to do is bring their own view of the situation to the fore, um, not to have people read between the lines and just to be super frank about what they're reporting on. And yeah. I think that this is an example of that gone horribly awry. Yes. Where clearly this journalist had a certain idea about a problem that is in campuses and she seems by the way, not to be wrong about that. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, that there, I mean, there are plenty of documented cases there are. Um, of sexual assault on in, you know, uh, university colleges. And it's also quite obvious uh, that, generally speaking, universities have been handling it badly, particularly when it comes to, like, sports stars. Yeah. And, and so what this sort of, this person did was create a, a, an advocate journalist's wet dream of a story. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing, it, it makes it, um, it's very, very clear that... She went looking for facts to fit a story mm. rather than going out and finding out facts and uh, making the story from that. Yeah. She had a story in mind. She wanted the most um, horrific example she could find. Yeah. And when uh, something that fit, fit that sort of fell into her lap, she didn't question it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the weird thing is, is that the fact that she just went she, she published a major story on the basis of one person's say-so. Yeah. Is an indicator that actually she really believed it. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and, I mean, there were other problems as well um, in that uh, just, you know, other journalistic failures of the story um, was that there were friends of Jackie who were quoted in the story um, and it made it seem like uh, she'd gone out and interviewed them as well, but they weren't actually the quotes of these friends of Jackie, they were quotes that Jackie had attributed to them. Oh, like it's just everything, really? everything about the story was just wrong, wrong, wrong. It's really just uh, writing an entire story on the basis of one person's say-so. Yeah. The sounds of it. Like she essentially did not speak to anyone except the person that was claiming to be a victim. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there were some other sort of general comments from uh, uh, like sexual assault support group campus support group people mm. uh, and things like that, but nothing actually to the facts of the case. Like In terms of the facts of the case, she had one source who was a liar. Um, what was the university again? Which university? Uh, uh, Virginia. Um, right, okay. So it's kind of, uh, I don't know. What do you think this says about journalism? We were talking about this the other evening, and it's my contention that to some extent this is the perfect emblem of a lot of the problems with journalism today. Yeah, because, because advocate journalism is, uh, it, it's a lot of journalism now. Um, I, I'm not sure if I could say it's all, but mm. it's certainly uh, like a vast amount. Um, Thing is, like, you look at a guy, though, like Matt Taibbi, yeah. who's a, a well-renowned and, in my view, excellent advocate journalist. Yeah. Really is good at what he does. But um, he, he checks his facts. Yeah. And he knows what he's talking about. That's kind of the other thing. Um, so, I mean, I don't see that there's a problem per se with advocate journalism, provided you get your goddamn facts right. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, uh, like they got, they've got this one so badly wrong on every level. Mm. And I, uh, I always like Rolling Stone. Like, I... I um, well, Matt Taibbi is a Rolling Stone guy. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, I would often read their articles. And obviously, you read them knowing that it's a, uh, uh, quite a left-wing... Um, publication, you just have that in mind in the same way that if you're reading um, 
what's the, uh, the Telegraph from the UK that has some good articles still at times, but you know that it's from a right wing. So, mm-hmm. um, but now when if I read a uh, a Rolling Stone article, um, particularly from uh, Sabrina, or if Sean Woods. Uh, as an editor, have have anything to do with it? Mm. I'm not going to be reading it. Going, oh yeah, um, just have to bear in mind that it's from the left. I actually have to think: is this actually have any factual basis? I mean, is this just completely wrong? Um, yeah, like their credibility is just shot. Yeah, and that's an interesting point. So, I, I think because yeah, there's a difference between taking something with a grain of salt because you know their slant on things, yes, and having to question their their facts. Um, or just their basic competence yeah. as reporters, in fact. And have we mentioned that none of these people have lost their jobs? We have not mentioned that, but yeah, none of these people have lost their jobs. Now, from the perspective of a journalist, yeah, like I can't believe that someone had right, to do it. Yeah. Someone either had to get fired or fall on their sword. Sean Woods, as the, uh, as I mean, Will Dana as as the overall editor. You know, technically it's on him. Personally, I put a lot of it on uh, Sean Woods as the news editor who was working with uh, Sabrina Early on this story in particular. It's really his job to pull her up and say, no, this isn't good enough. Yeah. Go back, find more people. Uh, is this actually fucking true? Yeah. And he didn't do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But obviously you can't, you know, let Sabrina Ruben Early off the hook either because she, my God, she did a terrible she job. She failed severely... But I agree with you that the guy in the middle, the yeah. editor, is really the one most at fault. Yeah. Like because he, he journalists are known to fail. Yeah. And his and if, job and is like, actually yeah. to fail and, safe. And it, yeah. And if, you know, it is possible in like a really uh, sort of emotional, you know, story like this, um, for a journalist who's like working with the source to get too close to it. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I'm not actually sure that that's the case here because, again, Erdley went out to find the most horrific, like, she, this, this is what she wanted, I, I think. Um, she just took, it seems to me, like if she's not a total idiot yeah. who's completely incompetent, she just decided to take a huge fucking risk yeah. that this girl was not lying. Yeah. And that she could just rely on that because it was juicy, it was going to generate a lot of publicity, and she was just going to take the, the risk, play a game of Russian roulette that, um, you know... It's more. It's much more unlikely than likely. Or sorry, she is telling the tr- the predominance of probability yeah. is that the victim is telling the truth because the overwhelming majority of victims yeah. in this respect are telling yeah. the truth, and so she just gambled on that. Yeah, and she lost. And she lost badly. Mm. Um. <laughs> yeah, and that is a gamble that I assume. These days, particularly being under pressure and having less resources than they ever have, yeah. many journalists are making or taking that bet. Definitely, um, and like because every newsroom I would uh, I would hazard in the world is cutting back on staff and yeah. cutting back on time, uh, and um, you know you've still got your deadlines to meet. Um, what's really interesting about this case, though, um, is that the uh, report specifically mentioned that fact and said that is has nothing to do with this case. Um, uh, Rolling Stone has, I think, lost about, I think they said 20, 25% um, of its uh, sort of newsroom staff uh, since 2008, I think it was. Um, forgive me if the facts are all wrong. I don't have the report in front of me. Um, mm. um, but That's in- called a caveat, Rod. <laughs> um, <laughs> she could have done with a few of those. She could have done with a few of those. <laughs> yeah. um, 
but uh, but in this instance, um, no, you, you still had um, Sean Woods, you know, going through this story with her. They still actually had a someone who was uh, paid um, as a fact checker mm. to fact, uh, check the facts of the story. Mm. Um, but because there was so, but because uh, there was so many um, things sort of left up in the air with. Uh, pseudonyms and all this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact checker didn't really have much to go on um, to to pull them up on it. Uh, and there were a couple of things that they went back to um, uh, Woods and Erdley about and said red flag possibly, uh, and they basically got ignored. The fact checker. So um, what is the problem here? Is this lack of resources? Like complete devotion to advocacy journalism to the exclusion of facts. I think it's. I think that one has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. This is the story that they wanted to tell. It was the perfect example of the story that they wanted to tell. Certainly, it was emblematic. It seemed yeah. to have every major element. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, uh, and they were just they were going to tell it. Didn't like. Uh, <laughs> so this is actually really a mixture of ambition. And um, advocacy journalism to the exclusion of um, inconvenient factual checks. Yeah. Reading between the lines, that's what your view is of it. I, I, yeah, that's my view of it. Uh, um, yeah. That's interesting. It's interesting. Um, I mean, ultimately, though, as I've said already, um, I think this is a gamble that a lot of people make. Um, and I would like to know how many of their stories that have been borne out by the facts, yeah. ultimately, were, were concocted on a gamble like this. Yeah. Because that's really... That's I an see interesting question. Because... Yeah. Um, and, I mean, there's no way to know that without being in the Rolling Stone newsroom. As they say, a um, broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> and so even if the Rolling Stone model of journalism has been fundamentally broken, they have had some pretty excellent stories. They really have. But you wonder how many of those excellent stories were a result of a gamble like this, a gamble that most people would say is um, unprofessional and beneath the standards of the craft to take. I mean, I wonder, I, I mean, I just do, I wonder if, can you make a report like this? That's probably a telling thing, whether or not this gamble is a, a, a correct thing to make. If you basically started your article with a disclaimer that you had made this gamble, but here's what we think, yeah, it wouldn't be so egregious. But you would never give the article credibility, would no, you? You wouldn't. You would. I mean, really, like, that's because it, because you are. Oh, well, it's a that's a very uh, uh, striking work of fiction, <laughs> or it's just slinging speculation. Yeah. And the fact is, is that slinging speculation is is sometimes even mostly correct. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Hmm. So goes the old adage. But in this case, unfortunately, there was a lot of smoke and there was no fire whatsoever. Yeah. And they just got busted. <laughs> it's, it's quite an amazing instance. But the law of averages says that at some point, if this is how lots of people are yeah. carrying on professionally, there's going to be this consequence at some point. Yeah. Someone's going to get caught. I think there's probably a lot of journalists looking at their boots right now. Um, you know reconsidering how they run their day-to-day yeah. operation. Well, I mean, one of the uh, one of the articles that I... Um, uh, one of my favourite articles that I'd read in Rolling Stone over the past month or so uh, was all was about 
um, you know, all the lies of Bill O'Reilly um, and what a terrible journalist he is, mm. um, which is kind of ironic now. Um, but uh, like, it was such a it was a real it was a well written article, and you know, uh, seemed quite well researched, going all the way back to his very early days um, uh, as a journalist covering the Falkland uh, Wars and that sort of thing, um, going into his you know forays as a fiction writer. Um, uh, and how that seemed to be spilling over into his journalistic life and all this sort of thing. Um, and um, I thought, yeah, excellent article. But, you know, now I'm going, uh, who, fa- who checked the facts on this? Um, well, let's speak to that because that's a fascinating issue, the issue of credibility, journalistic yeah. credibility. I mean, yeah, I suppose it highlights, your response there highlights what the role of journalism really is. In the world, yeah. and why there's still a place for journalists, um, and I'd argue that the fact that you read that thing and then thought, "Well, what's been fact-checked?" Yeah. is really an indicator of why we still need journalists. Actually, um, and if you don't take what would be considered to be a standard of journalistic ethics ethics to your work as a journalist, then you lose credibility. Yeah. Like, it is still how people find out what's going on in the world for the most part. It is. Um, Bloggers aside. Yeah. You, people still kind of need, essentially, fact-checkers. I mean, journalists still really act as fact-checkers. Yeah. Uh, and you, you wonder, with all the cuts to newsrooms, what the veracity of the information that we make decisions based on is going to be like going forward. Yeah. I, I, I don't think that we've really figured out how to... Like, everyone seems to be sort of dancing on the grave of journalism, but no one's really figured out what's what the, the alternative. Next model is. Yeah. yeah, like, how do we know what the facts are to discuss? Um, the old model is fading, and the new model is, well, what? Yeah. Medium just doesn't cut it. You know, like, you can yeah. talk... You can... BuzzFeed doesn't cut no, it. No, BuzzFeed doesn't fucking cut it. I mean, the, the sort of, the, the quote, new media, what they're really doing are just read, like digesting and rewriting the, the, the facts that are provided by what's left of the old media. Yeah. I mean, that's my criticism. With a few more photos. Yeah, with a few <laughs> more photos and maybe a listicle. Yeah. Um, like, you know... But, you know, at, at some point, I think we will find a new model that works, but we're just sort of in an in-between phase here, and I don't, I don't think anyone's got it yet. Yeah, I don't really have so, the answers myself. I mean, what the fuck? Who, who does the hard yards yeah. now? You know, these new media organisations, I would say, with the exception of Vice, to some extent, are not doing the journalistic hard yards to to separate fact from fiction for reporting. Yeah. Um, you know, Vice has had some, uh, I've got some issues with the way that they do their stuff, yeah. but they still are turning up some interesting facts that other organisations aren't. Yeah. Now, I think it's about time, and that's a pretty good segue on turning up interesting facts that others aren't. The Jinx. The Jinx. Uh, recently released HBO six-part documentary yeah. about the life and uh, apparent crimes of Robert yeah. Durst. So I should start this out by we saying... We should still say alleged crimes. Alleged crimes, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched The Jinx, don't listen to this segment. It'll spoil The Jinx, which is, in my opinion, 
probably the most ambitious and well-executed documentary I've ever seen. It's up there. Um, I to, uh, to try and put a short list of my sort of favourite documentaries, mm. um, Smartest Man in the Room, uh, Smartest Man in the Room, the Enron one. Yeah, that was a fantastic. I, that, that's a... Um, the um, the one we watched the other day, Virunga, Virunga was just incredible. Yep, uh, it immediately amazing. rocketed up right to the top of my list. Yeah, it was on the list for Ox for Oscars yeah. by the way, and really was only beaten out because of Edward Snowden yeah. and Citizen Four, which I think, in hindsight, is a more consequential issue. But yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, the Jinx, my God, I these guys did such a great job, and I mean, they were almost combining. Movie making with journalism with police work, mm. and they did it better than all three. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, so what they essentially did, like, just as a super brief pricey, uh, well, we're assuming, I suppose, that some of you have seen the Jinx, if not all of you. Um, so Robert Durst, very rich heir mm-hmm. to the Durst family real estate fortune in New York, um, one of the top five property owners on Manhattan Island. Um. Robert Durst was the oldest child. Uh, mother committed suicide as a child, which he witnessed. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, was passed over in favour of his brother Douglas as the heir to the business, the family business. Um, and he was accused of, or not rather, not accused, but suspected by some people of killing his first wife. Yeah, and who that was he in, was having a nasty yeah. divorce battle with. That was in eighty four, was it? Eighty two, I think. Yeah. Um, so there was a kind of uh, ham-fisted investigation by the New York police, which never really went anywhere. Yeah, they clearly didn't want anything to do with it. They did not want to investigate such a powerful person. It was quite obvious. Um, So that that was the first murder. Um, It is suspected by some that uh, the daughter of a mafia boss in Las Vegas... Who was a friend of Durst. A close friend of Durst, yeah. Um, Basically helped Robert Durst dispose of his wife's body. Um, Now, she lived in Los Angeles and was murdered. Yes. Um, Um, When she was... Fight record... Yeah, when she was in financial trouble and she was uh, allegedly asking him for $50,000. Which he did give her. Yeah. Um, But I think the theory is basically is that she was asking for more money. Yeah. The police were also, they just reopened the case into the first wife's disappearance. The police were asking her questions and suddenly um, she is shot dead in her home. Flight records put Robert Durst in California mm. on, on at the time of death, um, but in uh, not in LA, but looking at the, uh, you know, the times involved, he could definitely have driven from where he landed down to LA. Yeah, quite easily. I mean, it was a six-hour yeah. drive or so. Put a bullet in a... Yeah. Gone back, gone on the plane, flown, flown back to New York again. Yeah, so basically there was an ambitious New York prosecutor. She reopened the case into his wife's disappearance yeah. because they never did find the body. No. Um, Robert Durst decided to flee because um, he was tired of the attention um, and he ended up posing as a... A, a, a deaf mute, deaf mute woman living in Galveston, Texas, yeah, which is in really this little shithole yeah, uh, apartment, about as far away from civilization as you can be in the United States. Essentially, yeah. um, uh, subsequent to that, a, a body that had been cut into pieces, yeah. dismembered, arms, legs, torso in in garbage bags, washes up on the shore. 
yeah, washes up on the shore. Um, he is charged with murder. Um, it's his, it's uh, his neighbour in Gavelston, by the way. Yeah. Um, there was there was a, a trial. He he gets off. I will let you watch the documentary, or if you've seen yeah. the documentary, you know how that happened. Yeah. Quite amazing legal work by his defence attorneys, yeah. frankly. Um, and he gets away with that. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, these guys are making a documentary because they made a movie about yeah. the original story. And the thing was, apparently it wasn't a very good movie. It's, I think it's on like 30-something on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. Um, Didn't do that well. But one person liked it, and that person was Robert Durst. Mr. Durst liked it, so he got in touch with the movie makers, and um, yeah. So, uh, let's not get sort of too bogged down in the facts, because really you should be watching this movie yeah. or this documentary series on HBO if you haven't. Um, it might be a bit difficult for you to find, though, actually, if you're in Australia. Um, I'm not sure if, if it's available to the Australian audience. Yeah, it will be. Yeah, it will be at some point. Anyway, these guys managed to uncover facts that the cops heretofore had not figured yeah, out. that the cops, that uh, a couple of private investigators who'd been involved, yeah. no, one had, uh, no, no one had uncovered the facts that these guys uncovered. Um, well, the interesting thing is, strictly speaking, private investigators were involved yeah. and had highlighted suspicions. So really what this, I think, is, is an example of what you can actually accomplish if you set your mind to it these days. Yeah. With modern communications um, and uh, video cameras being available to everyone at a reasonable price, um, basically anyone can become an advocate documentary maker yeah um and what these guys ended up accomplishing is quite amazing yeah so as you're probably aware durst is back in prison yeah having been um arrested and charged with uh with the murder of the woman in la yeah arrested and charged with the la murder because of words uttered during the um a part of the documentary or an interview where he was mic'd up and didn't realise it. Yeah. He went to the bathroom and he's basically talking to himself like Norman Bates <laughs> from, from Psycho. Psycho. I mean, that's the yeah. best sort of... Like it, is, it is a chilling thing to hear. Yeah, it's pretty fucking nuts, man. Yeah. It really sounds like he's dealing with multiple personalities. Yeah. Um. And, uh, and, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, basically admitted to killing everyone. Um, yes, I killed them all, of, of course, course um, is what he says to... I mean, it's almost, like, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, just uh, quickly, I don't think that's the sole reason he's been arrested and charged again. Yeah. Um, uh, apparently the police, um, in their, like, investigations, they've all, they've, like, over the last year or so... Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. They've, you know, they... they Got other stuff as well, I think. Well, Some of that might be the um, the uh, letter and envelope uh, with the handwriting. It's, it's not. Apparently, uh, the oh, police really? were back on the game when they found out the documentary was being made. Okay. I mean, I think essentially the awareness that the documentary was coming out yeah. motivated the cops to do a bit of extra work. Yeah. And perhaps with the benefits of modern communications, they managed to gather more information. And I think that this actually speaks to a lot of sort of interesting issues about, first of all, like how easy it was to get away with murder. Yeah. Because uh, back in the day, without all these communications and recording and informational recording devices. Yeah. Like going right back to his wife's disappearance, they're going through the facts that were available at the time, and you think, how the fuck? 
<laughs> were red flags not going up about this? Well, it just seems that basically without a body, it's extraordinarily difficult yeah. to convict someone. But they didn't even really look for it. No, they didn't. Although they did later on the yeah, second they, they did, Yeah, they, on the second go around, they, they really looked and couldn't find one. But at the time, it was just like, they, I mean, it seems like he, she's just taken off. And that was it, as far as the cops were concerned, uh, to the point of not even checking mm. with the doorman of, uh, of the uh, apartment complex where she was apparently last seen, because Robert Durst had said that she'd been seen by a doorman. Um, yeah, which is quite amazing. Yeah, and they didn't even go and check with the doorman. If they had, he would have said no. <laughs> didn't see her. Didn't see her. Which would have meant that she never made it back to the yeah. city. Which means he never made it out of the country home where... Yeah, which would have meant that basically he was the last person to see her. Yeah. Um, and that's a fascinating thing in the sense that you can see the media just reporting incorrect facts. Yeah, at the time. At the time that the Durst family had put out into the public domain. Yeah. And that's a very interesting example of how you can swing people with PR because it's almost as if these facts were like established and accepted... And the cops kind of just operated, seemingly, on the basis of these well-reported facts by the media that yeah. were completely incorrect yeah. in hindsight. Well, I mean, they're also the uh, the facts. I'm doing inverted commas here that you can't see, listeners. <laughs> facts um, that uh, Durst was telling the police, and they didn't seem to bother checking on it either. Yeah, and I um, think that's key. The cops obviously did not want to find out. Yeah, they were not interested in pursuing like, a to guy. the point of not going and interviewing the fucking doorman, who was apparently the last person to see her alive. Like, if you're not doing that, you don't want to know. Oh, no, no question, absolutely no question about that. Yeah, um, and I think that there's also a kind of the the phenomenon of well, like there is no body. She actually could well have just gone missing. Yeah. She could just have buggered off. Um, and so there's a certain amount of time that elapses. But there were some, like, quite strong advocates in favour of the theory that she'd been murdered. Yeah. Her close friends, her family, and yeah. they were really just ignored. Yeah. I mean, and the, you know, they were they were talking about how the couple had been fighting, how she wanted a divorce, all these sort of and things. And she also said something to the effect that if anything happens to me, it was him. Yeah. I mean, like, all, all these things where you just go, yeah, okay, may, maybe, we should, maybe we should look into it. There, there were yeah. very red flags. Um, but uh, they were completely ignored. Yeah, quite amazing. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if that would even be possible now for no. people to be ignored like that if they were writing yeah. statements on social media and the there'd like. Be out, there'd be too much outcry about it. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if they approached journalists at the time. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure. I wouldn't, yeah. But I mean, you know, it's, it's an interesting... What this is, is first of all, a story almost too strange for words. Yeah. Like describing it just then you kind of get another perspective on just how fucking bizarre yeah. the whole thing like is. Like one of the main complaints again about the movie that these filmmakers made about the story was that it was just too fucking unbelievable. Too fantastical, yeah. 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 Um, like a fiction writer would never get away with the, this factual scenario. Yeah, um, yeah. It was just considered too bizarre. Um, but as it happens, it really does seem like this guy did kill each of the people he was accused yeah. of killing. Well, I mean, he certainly killed the guy in Texas. There's no question about that. He just got away with it. He got away with uh, it on like, a defence. On, on, a, on, a, on a, you know, a, a, you know, incredible fucking work from his defence lawyers. Jesus Christ. Um, like, because there was, no, uh, there was no question to the fact that he shot this guy and dismembered the body 
uh, and dumped them in garbage bags in the fucking bay. Um, For whatever reason, I mean, basically, the way they the defence attorneys got away with that, I thought, was exceedingly clever. First of all, they used the incredibly unlikable, uns- unsympathetic, nasty-looking uh, female um, New Jersey prosecutor. It was a New, New Jersey, Jersey or, or New, New York, York prosecutor. Yeah, and um, and that that as, played very well to the Texan jury. Well, the the reality is is that like there was truth to what they were saying. They were saying this is a careerist prosecutor. Who's burning just, with ambition. Burning with ambition. Wants a big case. Who just hounded him out of New York. To make this guy a fall guy. Yeah. And, I mean, that's not incorrect. Yes. And they made It's quite obvious yeah. that that's what she was motivated and they by. And they used that to turn this guy, who has just fucking murdered and dismembered his neighbour, into a sympathetic character before they even got to the murdering and dismembering. Yeah. Like, that's how they did it. Um, Absolutely. And then the dismembering, actually, the reality is, is again, the defence attorney was not incorrect when he said, well, he hasn't been charged for Which dismembering is incredible. the body. Like that, and I, I, I don't understand how that happened because I, I don't know enough about the, the you know, legal system in Texas. I don't know if that's a crime that he could have been charged with. And almost in Austra- Like in Australia, uh, interference with a corpse is an ex- extra charge that would go on top of a murder charge. Oh, there was definitely um, there was definitely another charge yeah. because I remember in the documentary, the family was saying, they kept saying, oh, it's a slam dunk case for murder one. Yeah. So we're just going to go for the murder so one. So you fucking idiots. Yeah, so they, they had so no... So the prosecutors are morons. There was no backup charge, yeah. basically. They went for murder one because they thought they could get him on that. Yeah. But the simple fact was, is that he had good defence attorneys. There were no witnesses to the actual That's the killing. Thing. And, there have been um, no witnesses to any of them. Well, that's it. And, I mean, we've seen with, like, police killings in the US that uh, witnesses matter. Yeah, and so hugely. if the only witness to the situation is dead, uh, there is always a plausible argument that it was self-defence. Um, and that's what he successfully argued. And in my view, to be absolutely frank with you, if I'd been in the jury, I would have let him go on the murder. If I was following the um, strict letter of the law and there was a, a threshold of beyond reasonable doubt... I could not say hand on heart that the defence or that the prosecution proved that he had murdered that guy beyond reasonable doubt. I just don't think I, he did. I'm a bit uh, nervous about making that sort of statement myself because we weren't there. Like b- Based on what they showed us in the documentary of the court case, mm. fair enough. But, but, we, the, we, but you know, there, there, there would have been plenty of evidence put forward that we didn't, you know, in sure. the, the weeks of things. Based on um, what yeah. I saw in the documentary, yeah. I completely agree with you. And the big problem really with the, the defence theory was the bruising on the body yeah. of the person. Uh, and the other bullet hole on the wall, which he said was the guy had shot at another time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it certainly wasn't uh, Durst, you know, tr- trying to blow this guy away and missing. Yeah, the other um, thing is, by the way, that the only part of the body that was never recovered was, was the, the head, yeah. <laughs> which would indicate the bullet hole was very you know, important evidence as yeah. to what kind of crime had been committed. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> the body parts floated back up onto the beach, and yeah. what they think is that he grabbed the head. He went back the next morning and grabbed the head. Yeah. Because if there's, you know, a shot in the back of the head, that's not self-defence. Yeah, that ain't going to be self-defence. I mean, I suppose you could argue it. Anyway, look, yeah. I actually thought the documentary makers were even-handed. Yeah. That was what was fascinating about it. I think that they really did suspend their disbelief of Durst's stories. 
They did approach the facts, yeah. but by they the tried end, to go to as many people as they could. They did. Um, uh, I think they genuinely had questions in their minds yeah. about whether or not he was guilty. They had prosecutors, they had defence, they had friends of victims, they had family members, mm-hmm. they had Durst front and centre. Yeah, um, giving his side yeah, of the story. They, they tried repeatedly to go to other members of the Durst family as well with mixed success. Yep. Um, they really tried to cover every basis. There was one moment which I didn't really enjoy, which was right at the end, which was where they really sort of put them, like, you know, themselves into uh, into the movie and like they had a lot of footage of them talking about their responsibilities yeah. to Justin and that sort of thing and part of me didn't really like that but part of me also was like gave them a pass because of how fucking well they'd done finding evidence that police hadn't. I um, would rise in defence of that technique that yeah. they used. I see why you'd be squeamish about that yeah. because that was not the case up until that yeah. point. But the factual scenario... Like how it had changed for them. Like, yeah. yeah. The, the, uh, the things they had uncovered, they had to talk about. Yeah. And so... If that final interview yeah. had not shown what it did, then the lead up to that final interview would have been less important. Yeah. But I actually think that that was good context to have the trouble that they had getting him for that final yeah. interview. Because what was obvious was that he had thought better yeah. of his involvement yeah. and he had... Basically, he was just not into it anymore. Yeah, he was done. <laughs> he was done, yeah. And he was scared. Yeah, because he was worried about what they'd found out and what he'd said. And Absolutely. What... And there was a clear switch where they went between the interviews from basically suspending their disbelief of the guy's story yeah. to just being like, look, the preponderance of evidence is that this guy is guilty. Yeah. And I think that there was a certain... It was just fascinating to see them trying to get him back in yeah. an interview chair when he <laughs> was the, probably like smart the enough. months that they had to go. Oh, absolutely. And the kind of interesting factual scenario around why they did manage to get him back yeah, in the chair. which is fascinating. I totally give them a pass yeah. on it. I mean... It was, yeah, and, and ultimately I do as well. It was just, not just that, I, though. Yeah. It was a better documentary for that being in there. I would feel like I'd been robbed of important facts yeah. around the final confession, the yeah. quasi confession if I did not know those facts. And frankly, the documentary maker is not a likeable guy. No, he, I mean... He's pretty douchey. He looks a bit douchey. Sorry, Jarecki. He does. You are a fucking genius, Jarecki, but you don't come across as a particularly nice chap. Um, And to be honest with you, disagreeable people often accomplish more than agreeable people, so I don't begrudge that. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I just was, I mean, just blown away by how good this documentary was and the fact that it just sustained my utterly fixated attention yeah for six hours for six hours yeah is really that's a new level in documentary making in my view yeah um, and i think there are going to be a lot more people making long documentary series and the other thing is is i mean we're sort of running out of time here a bit but it's also emblematic of this very interesting trend underway for true crime stories. Yeah. Serial, the podcast, very famous, very, um, you know, uh, very interesting podcast about an old murder case. Uh, This one, um, I know um, Ali knows, what's his name? The Um, comedian. The Australian. Yeah. uh, I've read his goddamn true crime book. John Safran. John Safran, who who has been on this true crime trip for a few years yeah. now. I mean, kind of ahead of the curve. He's a yeah. smart bloke, Safran. Really? He's got a really good book, uh, Murder in Mississippi, I believe it's called. Yeah, um, yeah, it's another true crime. Yeah. So, I mean, there's really this sort of uh, 
there's a lot of true crime stuff coming out that is of very high caliber. Yeah. And I think probably for the next few years, we're going to have a fair amount of this true crime stuff around. Um, the reality is, though, is that like True Det- Detective, which is a fictional TV series, yeah. I mean, ultimately, this was non-fiction yeah. and far more bizarre and engrossing than the fictional True Detective story. I mean, just unbelievably fascinating, and it's still playing out. Yeah. I'll be watching with with great interest is uh, the next court case. Well, that's it. I think um, Jarecki is going to be front and centre with a video camera during the proceedings. Well, I'm not sure if he can be because he's a witness. Um, is, does that mean he can't sit in a courtroom with a camera? I'm not sure. It depends on I, the rules of yeah, jurisdiction too. Because I know certainly in Queensland criminal courts, which I spend a lot of time in as a journo, yeah. um, if you're a witness in a, uh, in a trial, um, you're not supposed to be in there listening to what other witnesses are saying. So I'm not sure if that's the case in the States though. Put it this way though, he would definitely be able to use offsiders to take footage yeah. and then not review it until after the... Uh, there'd be ways around it. Yeah. And Jarecki would be fucking crazy <laughs> not to be basically making a, a sequel documentary. Yeah. Um, I want him desperately <laughs> to make a sequel documentary about this because, I mean, I don't really go into the true crime stuff. It's not really my bag, but this was just on another level. Yeah. Really. It was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, on that note. On that note, we'll probably see you next week. Um, yeah, we'll probably do one. That'll probably be our final, though, before yeah. we both bugger off. Yeah. Um, the Richmond pad will be no more. Yeah. So, um, you know, we'll see if it's at all workable um, wherever we, you know, both end up just doing them remotely. Um, yeah, oh, look, there are ways to do that. Yeah. And um, I, I think that um, it'll be much more sporadic, but um, that the conversations of Pat and Rod saving the world um, hopefully we'll continue in some form. Um, but look, might have more for you on that next week. Right. Until then. See you around.